Well, I want to encourage you now to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week we looked at the principle of being sexually pure in a very polluted world. We've been looking at this book of 1 Corinthians going verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we see that Paul is addressing a number of issues within the Corinthian church. In chapter 6 he addressed the issue of lawsuits among believers within the church. Then we saw last week he addressed the issue of immorality within the church. And then he comes to chapter 7. He comes to chapter 7 in beginning a section regarding marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we will be reading from verses 1 through 7. It reads this way. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immorality, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. Father, once again we come to your word and we ask that you would guide us, that you would illumine our minds, and that you would also guard us, that you would place a hedge about our minds and our hearts, even as we talk about sensitive subjects. Oh God, we pray that you would help us to conduct ourselves in a manner that is proper, in a manner that honors you. When it comes to relationships, we pray, Father, that you would once again open our eyes that we might see great and mighty things from thy law. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we looked at the principle of being sexually pure in a polluted world, in an immoral world. Last week, we looked at the city of Corinth and the culture of Corinth, which was very immoral. And as I shared with you last week, and I shared with you at the beginning of this book, the city of Corinth had, as one of its major temples, the temple of Aphrodite, which is the goddess of love. And in that temple, it housed some 1,000 temple prostitutes who would ply their trade among the travelers who would come into Corinth and those who were the men of the city. They would come down at night. In fact, it was such an immoral city that to be called a Corinthian was to be synonymous with being called an immoral person. It was in that context as well that we're reminded in chapter 6 that our bodies belong to God. Our bodies are not our own and that sins of the body are unique 
in their grip upon a person's heart. Sins against the body are different. They are different and their power is strong. So the solution to sexual immorality, as we saw in the last chapter, is to what? Flee. Is to flee. It is not to stand firm. It is not to mingle. The word means to run. To run and run and run until the danger is past. There's no dwaddling. There's no people who would say, well, I've got it under control. No, it is a solution to the problem is to run. And a dramatic cutting off of whatever immoral sin that might capture a person's heart and life in whatever form it is found. And now Paul turns in chapters 7 through 11 and what he does at this point is he begins answering questions because they had written a letter to Paul. They had written a letter to Paul and Paul begins to write in chapter 7 beginning with the subject of marriage in answering the questions that they had. The first of which was that of marriage. Now some had begun to think when we look at this context some had begun to think boy, because of all the immorality or maybe because they became a Christian and they were married to someone who was not a Christian, that all sexual relations, even in marriage, was bad or evil or wicked or yucky or whatever it might have been. That sentiment was carried on, sometimes held, in that culture and perhaps even today. Some people look at it in that way. That intimate relations between men and women in all contexts is not a good thing. Some might come to that because of all of the abuses or the terrible consequences or the conflict that ensues because of it. There was an article written entitled, What's Good About Sex? on Focus on the Family's website. And it reads this way, a case could be made for a negative view. It reads, quote, Midnight. John is trying to explain his way out of calling his wife by another woman's name during their embraces. One o'clock, Shelley, 16, is in her bedroom, secretly cutting herself with a razor because of what her boyfriend made her do. Two o'clock, his wife asleep, Stephen is busy downloading shameful images from internet bulletin boards. Three o'clock, Marjorie, who used to spend each Friday night in bed with a different man, has been binging and purging for four hours. Four o'clock, Pablo stares through the darkness at his ceiling, wonder, wondering how he's going to convince his girlfriend to have an abortion. Five o'clock, after partying all night, Michael takes another man home, not mentioning that he tests positive for HIV. Six o'clock, Lisa is in the bathroom, crying. The idea that sex is inherently bad doesn't come from the Bible, he writes. It comes from ancient Gnosticism, which taught that the Creator wasn't God, but a lesser being who made a botch of things. Gnostics thought spirit's good, body's bad, and sex is just a matter of bodies, unquote. With all of the ways that man has perverted intimate relationships, it all of the heartache that it brings, all of the sorrow, it's no wonder that some people could view it that way. And that's how some in the Corinthian church began to view it. And they thought, well, let's ask Paul. So in a letter they addressed to him, he answers these issues and he begins to write here in chapter 7 how one is to view 
and how one is to treat and how one is to conduct themselves. What is the proper way to conduct oneself in regards to sexual relations between men and women, in particular with husbands and wives. And the first thing that he points out is that there is a sexual benefit to being married. There is a sexual benefit to being married. One of the benefits in verse 1 and 2 that he outlines is that sexual intimacy which inhibits one from the temptation of fornication or adultery is found in marriage. I don't mean to say by that statement that it's a cure-all or that it's a magic bullet, but merely that one of the benefits is that one can properly find their fulfillment of sexual satisfaction within the boundaries of marriage. So we look at verse 1 and 2, and there it says in verse 1, says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And here it outlines that he is answering these questions. Now it's careful to understand, it's important to understand that various translations of the Bible begin to translate the next phrase in a different way. The New International Version, if you have that, you'll notice it says, it is good for a man not to marry. It is good for a man not to marry. Well, that would be a difficult understanding for some people who might think, well, what does Genesis 2.18 say? It's not good for a man to be alone. Well, the NAS in the King James Version, New American Standard says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Does that mean you can't shake hands? You can't give them a hug? You can't pat them on the back or whatever it is, your grandmother? I don't know. Now concerning in the English Standard Version, it reads this way, quote, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And there in those three contexts, or those three translations, various views are propagated. Is it bad for a person to marry? Is it bad for a person to touch a woman? Is it bad for a person to have sexual relations with a woman? And in what context does that mean? The English Standard Version is the one that most accurately portrays the meaning of the passage. You see, in a number of extra-biblical writings, as well as biblical passages, that little phrase that you read in the NAS, as well as the King James Version, to touch a woman, is a reference, is a euphemism for sexual intercourse, not merely getting married. It's used that way in Genesis 20, verse 6, Ruth 2, 9, Proverbs 6, 29 as well. So the rendering of the New International Version is probably not the best translation there. It is better to understand it as it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Secondly, though, in understanding what that means, the English Standard Version puts that phrase in a quotation. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. What does that mean? Well, it is widely understood that the, these quotation marks help. You know, in the Greek language, they don't exactly have quotations. So, as we had learned last week, there were a number of sayings that were floating around Corinth. A number of things that people were saying about particular things, and it is believed that this was one of the sayings that people would have. Remember last week, people would say, all things are lawful. And when there was a saying, Paul either qualified it or he clarified it or he corrected it. And when people would say all things are lawful, remember in chapter 6, they'd say all things are lawful. I can do anything. I'm free to do whatever I want. And Paul says, well, not all things are profitable. 
nor will I be mastered by anything. And all doesn't mean all. It means all things that are not unlawful are lawful. Or they would also say, in regards to sexual immorality, they would say, well, you know what? Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. In other words, immorality is merely a biological, physical function. Nothing more, nothing less. Just like food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. We have sayings like that as well. When people say, well, practice makes perfect. And I always thought that practice makes perfect. Yes, practice makes perfect. That's until I went and played tennis and my coach would tell me, no way. It's proper practice or perfect practice makes perfect. Because you practice something over and over again, you're making a mistake. You'll what? Continue to solidify that poor mistake that you're making. We have sayings like that and it's believed that this was one of the sayings. That what? It is, not, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul addresses that. And he says in effect, look, you're all saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And they began to think that. Why? Because of perhaps rampant immorality. Perhaps they had, be- they had uh, become a Christian. And they married somebody who was not. And they began to see all things, even sex, even in marriage, as something that is bad. The Bible, though, portrays sexual relationships as something that is, what, created by God. That is good when it is exercised within the boundaries of marriage. Fornication is condemned. That is, illicit sex when one is single. And then there is adultery which is condemned, which is sexual relations by married people outside of their marriage. And it's because of man's perversion of what God intended to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage that people began to say, well, maybe it's better we just abstain from everything. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But Paul then says in verse 2, But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Verse 2. Now, if a person had said, well, look, in the NIV, it says it's good for a man not to marry. But because of immoralities, everybody should get married. That would be a conceding statement. And some people believe that's true. Some people believe that that's the proper view to take. Well, he would be saying, oh, all of you should get married. Why? Because you all can't control yourself. You're such a hopeless cause. The phrase to have, though, when you look at verse two, to have each man is to have his own wife. Each woman is to have her own husband is another euphemism for sexual relations. Each man is to have his own wife. Each wife is to have her own husband. And so understanding the passage, he's correcting them. And he's saying, in effect, this. You may think that all sexual relations, even in marriage, are bad. But I'm telling you, because of the power of immorality and temptation, each person should have sexual relations with his own wife and with his own or her own husband. Sexual relationships within the boundary of marriage between a man and a woman are proper and are good. So, we look at this passage and we understand it in that sense. And the verse, furthermore, tells us that each person is to have one spouse. Some people ask, well, where, does, where is polygamy taught or, or condemned in the Bible? Well, it's implied here. Each person is to have one 
spouse. It doesn't say each man is to have his own wives or each wife is to have her own husbands. No, here it says each one is to have his own wife, each one is to have her own husband. Not only that, you look back into the book of Genesis and when God created Adam, He created Eve. He didn't create Adam and Eve and there's Wanda and Juliet and Susie Q or whoever else. One wife for one husband and vice versa. So secondly though, we also see within this context that marital commitment, marital commitment comes before sexual intimacy. Commitment comes before intimacy. You know, in our culture, they've changed it all around, haven't they? People argue, they say, well, we want to live together. We want to sleep together. People want to have one night stands. People want to flock to those spring break destinations, vacation spots, looking for, quote unquote, intimacy without the commitment where you can all leave it behind out in whatever place you go to. In fact, marital commitments are harder and harder to find. With the rising number of single adults, the average age of those who are getting married climbs. Back in 1960, I just read, 1960, the average age of a, of a man who got married was about 23. In 2004, the average age of a man who got married now is about 27. People don't want that commitment. People want intimacy. They don't want that commitment. The Bible tells us, though, intimacy comes after marital commitment. And from a practical standpoint, there are plenty of studies that show that the joys of intimacy are greater if you wait. That the joys of intimacy are far greater in marriage. People who commit fornication, people who are promiscuous, people who live a loose lifestyle, have a greater number of problems after they get married. And it pays to wait. So to be blunt, if you're not married, don't mess around. In regards to this text, Paul's main thrust, Paul's main point here is that sex is not evil in and of itself. It is good. But that there is a greater temptation of sexual sin for those who are not married. And one of the benefits of being married is that one can enjoy that intimacy within the bounds of their marriage relationship. Again, it's not the primary purpose by which people are to be married, but in the context in which Paul is writing, there is the means by which God has given to people who are married to enjoy their desire, and that is fulfilled within the bounds of a marriage relationship. The second area, though, that Paul writes about is proper sexual relations and what is proper for one spouse to fulfill in their duty to the other. So we look verses 3 through 5. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over home body, but the husband does. And then he goes on to say vice versa. And likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. As I mentioned before, in the Corinthian church, there was perhaps beginning a thought that maybe everything was bad, even in the marriage relationship. Intimate relations would be bad, even in the marriage relationship. And a husband would therefore refuse to have intimate relations with his wife. And a wife would refuse to have it with her husband. Especially if they thought, well, he is not a Christian and I have come to know the Lord. What am I to do? 
In either circumstance, Paul says and Bible says, do not withhold yourself from your spouse. It's your, it's your duty and not only your duty, you don't have full authority over your own body. In a spiritual sense, we belong to God, but in the physical sense, there is that right or authority that comes that is partly belonging to your spouse. For it says in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, and vice versa. And that authority is a general statement that's always true. Men and women are wired differently when it comes to physical intimacy. And it's common for husbands and wives not to understand that and the way they are made. And perhaps I have to say that there have been times in you know, counseling or whatever it might be that there's not an understanding. Julie Slattery is a professional marriage counselor. She writes and has written a number of articles on physical intimacy and posted on Focus on the Family and her insights are helpful because she delineates these clearly between men and women. She writes this, quote, Typically, when I meet a couple for marriage counseling, I ask both the husband and the wife the question, What would you like to see changed in your marriage through our time together? Seems like a very general question, right? Most of the time, the wife is the first to respond because she usually is the one who initiated the counseling. Her, her answer often sounds something like this. I hope we communicate more. I want him to understand my needs. I want to feel closer and more appreciated by him, unquote. She might also include specific requests such as help with housework, more involvement in parenting, or a more active role in spiritual leadership. Nine times out of ten, the husband's response has something to do with sex. His request is usually short, straightforward, and nine times out of ten, the husband gets some kind of disgusted or dismissive look from his wife. Her body language screams, quote, You have got to be kidding. That is so superficial, unquote. Sometimes she gives me one of those woman-to-woman looks that say, See what I have to deal with? How are you going to fix this? Sex is very important to men, she writes. Research consistently shows that between 80 and 90% of men view sex as the most important aspect of their marriage. When asked what one thing they would like to change in their marriages, they wish that their wives would be more interested in sex and willing to initiate physical intimacy, unquote. Shanti Feldham, in her book, For Women Only, also underscores that it has a deep emotional impact on men. She writes that the vast majority of men indicated that being sexually fulfilled in marriage significantly impacted their confidence and their masculinity. And they agreed that they would have a greater sense, a greater sense of well-being and satisfaction with life. That's for men and understanding men. Understanding women, a woman's desire, slattery writes is far more connected to emotions than her husband's sex drive is. Dr. James Dobson writes that it's the romantic aura that surrounds her man and by his character and personality. She is drawn to a man who appeals to her emotionally as well as physically. All that to say that men and women are wired differently, have different needs, 
have different desires. And Paul's main point in this particular passage between husbands and wives is not to deprive oneself or the other, I should say, by withholding oneself from the other. Because in the Corinthian church, some began to think that it is more spiritual, more spiritual to abstain even in the context of marriage. And in our culture, you know, sometimes people abstain. People abstain, not because they feel it's more spiritual, but because sometimes they want to punish the other spouse. Sometimes they want revenge, or sometimes they see it as disgusting, or whatever it might be, and minimize its importance. Verse 5 tells very clearly, though, it says there, verse 5, stop, stop depriving one another. So Paul moves and he says, you know what, there is a benefit, verses 1 and 2, there is a benefit to sexual intimacy within marriage. There is a duty of sexual intimacy to one's partner. And then there is the place of abstinence, he says. There is a place for abstinence within marriage. Verse 5. Now, oftentimes we talk about abstinence. We talk about abstinence among people who are young, who are single. And that, of course, is God's desire for those who are single, those who are not married, that there is not to be any sexual intimacy before marriage, period. It's called fornication. And as I shared with you earlier, the Bible always places marital commitment prior to sexual intimacy. And here Paul says, though, that there is also a place for abstinence within marriage. He says, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and Come again together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There is a place of abstinence and that would be for the purpose of prayer. There are times in life, sometimes very difficult times, times of tragedy, times of death, perhaps burden for a particular ministry, perhaps a spiritual concern, perhaps some context in which one desires perhaps even to walk rightly with God, that people choose to pray. It is by mutual agreement, the text says. And even in the Bible, there are times that our abstinence is promoted. There are times that abstinence is talked about. When God came at Mount Sinai, for example, the Israelites had come out of Egypt. The Israelites had come out of Egypt and God said to them, When I come in a cloud, wash your clothes and no one is to have what? Sexual intimacy for three days. Verse 15 of chapter 19. During a future time of mourning, there will be abstinence between married folks in Joel 2 and Ezekiel and Zechariah chapter 12. By agreement for a time, for the purpose of prayer. And it is for a set period of time so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan desires to tempt a person. Satan desires to tempt a person. This is what it means when there are single individuals, when there are single individuals who do not have marriage to fulfill that desire. And Satan tempts them and he can tempt those who abstain, who are in a marriage relationship as well. People are not more holy if they abstain, but Paul says here, there is a period that can be done and warranted within marriage for the purpose of prayer. Lastly, he tells them, God has given to some the gift of celibacy. The gift of celibacy. Verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. 
However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. The first thing that Paul wished was that all people would be like himself. He wished that all people were like himself. And we'll see later on, he was not a married man at this time. Some say that he was never married. Others say that he was a widower. I believe myself that he was a widower. Why? Because Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He followed the letter of the law. And he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. And if he followed the letter of the law, a member of the Sanhedrin had to be an individual who was married. So I believe by this time or sometime along the way, his wife passed away. His wife died. I, whatever the case may be, Paul was single at this time. And he says, look, I wish that all were like myself. And he says, each man has his own gift. Each man has his own gift. There is a gift of singleness. Now, I like meeting people. I like meeting new people. Some people come. They come to the church. And they, 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 I like to welcome them. And then they'll ask about my wife. Sometimes they'll point to somebody that they think was my wife here. And they'll say, is that your wife? And I'll say, uh, no, no, that's not my wife. And they'll ask me where she is. And I'll tell them, uh, well, I'm not married. And I chuckle. And then they'll hem and haw and they'll say, well, do, do you, um, do you ha- have the gift? And I'll say to them, well, yeah, no, I don't think I have the gift. I don't really mind people asking me if I have the gift. I know what they mean and that's perfectly fine. I can tell you, there are probably some other single people though, when they're asked if they have the gift, they're saying, no, I think I have the curse. <laughs> Some people think that being married is better than being single. Some people who are single think it's better being married. And God said, right, it's not good for a man to be alone. And I make him a suitable helper for him, it says in Genesis 2.18. And there are many benefits to being married. But Paul himself wouldn't say, I wish that all men were even as myself am. I'm in a bad state. I wish everybody was in my bad state. That's not what he is saying. It's not better to be single, not better to be married. There's no spiritual superiority between the two. In fact, in Genesis, sometimes I hear that quite often, you know. People tend to remind me of that verse for some reason. They tell me that and I think to myself, well, of course. Adam, all he was there. That's all. Who did he fellowship with? Mr. Hippo, Mr. Giraffe or whoever it might be. He had nobody else and God created for him a helper suitable for him, a partner in life. And that is the norm for most people. But Jesus in Matthew 19, he says this in verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. For some people, God has given them the gift of singleness. And you might wonder yourself then, how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? Boy, my son, my daughter, they're in their late 20s. I wonder if they have the gift. My son or daughter, they're in their 30s or 40s or whatever. They must have the gift. Well, some people might think, how do you know? They might think to themselves, how do I know if I have that gift? 
Now, as I mentioned, the norm is that for most people, they are to be married. God has planned that. It is part of God's creative plan. But simply because more and more people these days are single does not mean that God has given the gift of singleness to more and more people. It is probably more so a lack of commitment, as I had mentioned before, or because oftentimes of their own poor choices, because of the things that they have desired to do, their desire, which is to live and do things their own way. So in the future, we'll be looking at the subject of singleness, as well as marriage, as well as divorce, since Paul writes here, and we'll look at that question and answer that question more in point. But Paul's point here in this particular section is that abstinence is good outside of marriage. It's allowed for the purpose of prayer in marriage. And some have the gift of singleness. So God has created for us a good thing. Something good in physical intimacy to be enjoyed by people within the boundaries of marriage. When it's not enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage, there are all sorts of problems that ensue, all sorts of difficulties. And man in his sinfulness, man has misused and abused what God has created to be good. There are benefits to being married. There are benefits in that it reduces the temptation that single individuals might face. There is the duty that husbands have with their wives. There is a place for prayer and abstaining from intimacy. And God has given to some the gift of celibacy. So it is not something, physical intimacy is not something that is completely wrong, sinful. It is not something that is to be avoided. But it is something that is to be enjoyed and has been given by God to be enjoyed within the boundaries of marriage. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your greatness and your gift. We pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord. Help us, for we are weak. We know, O God, that you have given to us a gifts of a spouse by which we can enjoy what you have created. We pray, Father, that you would help us to find contentment and that, Father, you would help us to have a view of what you have created that is biblical. We pray, God, that you would protect us from immorality, from the abuses that we see that so often happen in our world, that we might protect and teach our children as well about your ways, which are perfect and good. In Jesus' name, amen.